Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. This episode of the Crack House Chronicles is brought to you by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. This is not a crisis line or a self-help line. It's professional counseling done securely online. Now, Dale, this is a broad range of expertise that is available, which may not be locally available in many areas. Yeah, this service is available for clients worldwide. Worldwide? Worldwide. Worldwide. And you can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. So you don't have to ever have to worry about sitting in an uncomfortable waiting room and waiting on a traditional therapist. Yeah, which is really good in this time. You don't really want to go and sit in the waiting room with a bunch of people with the stuff going on that's going on today. Sit there with a mask on and, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's no good. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches. And if you don't like your counselor, it's pretty easy to change. Okay, sounds good. Yeah. It's more affordable than traditional online counseling and financial aid is available. That's always good. Right that's, a, that's awesome. Yeah. And BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. That's right. So visit their website and read the testimonials. They're posted there daily. All right, Dale. Visit BetterHelp.com slash CHC. That's Better H-E-L-P. And you can join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. That's right. In fact, so many people are using it now. They're actually recruiting counselors in all 50 states. So a special offer for our listeners, you can get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash C-H-C. you got to use the code word BetterHelp.com slash C-H-C. Hey, what is up, everyone? Welcome to the Crack House Chronicles. I am Donnie, your host, and with me is a man who keeps spare change lying around just in case his regular change has a flat. <laughs> it's Dale. That's pretty good. That's pretty good, especially in a, a change, uh, a change-free world. Oh, yeah. There's a, there's a change shortage. Shortage. Yeah, and I'm the cause of it because I have a swear jar now. <laughs> so... It's overflowing. It's, it's overflowing. <laughs> well, I got some spares if you need them. All right. What's going on, dude? What's happening, man? Oh, just ready to do some more Ramirez today. Yeah, we need to get it going. It's been a little bit. Life gets in the way, but we're ready to rock today. Absolutely. You got any kind of shout-outs or any kind of 
housekeeping for us, bud? Oh, uh, just got a little bit. I'd like to give a shout out to uh, Kelsey Keller. She's a fan of the show. She bought a good bit of merchandise from us, and we appreciate that very much. Absolutely. She's got a couple of t-shirts and a hoodie and some other stuff, so... We really appreciate that, Kels. And we want to remind everybody, too, like we do every episode, is check us out on our social media. Check us out on whatever platform you listen to. If it allows it, give us a rating and review, five stars. Five stars. And it really helps the cause. That's right. Show up on our Facebook page and our Instagram page and uh, swing over to YouTube and hit the subscribe button. We, 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 we like to get a few more. Yep. We need some uh, collection. And also... Check out our website, the store page, buy a t-shirt, mask, hoodie, mug, whatever. There's all kinds of stuff on there. Whatever. Just throw something in the gas jar if you want. Yeah, we might send you a sticker or something. All right, Dale, we're going to do part two of Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. And when we left off from part one, we were talking about when uh, Richard had killed Bill Doy. And then he went in and raped Lillian, who was bedridden. Right. Yeah. And what we left off from part one was, uh, you know, we told that Bill had gotten shot in the face by Richard. Yep. And But Bill had managed to call 911. Yeah, it was pretty bad. He shot him like, what was like like, uh, right, right below the nose, I think. Yeah. And then he actually had the bullet had lodged in his throat. And then uh, I think Richard maybe had beat him unconscious. Yeah. And then uh, he went to go uh, have his way in with Lillian, and then Bill had actually come back to and crawled over to get the phone to call 911. Mm-hmm. So uh, he basically would be the one to save her life. Yeah, he, he saved her life. So at this point, we'd like to give a little bit of recap from our first episode, you know, because at this point, we know that uh, Richard had basically been groomed to be the pretty much the perfect serial killer, Donnie. Yeah. I mean, he'd been desensitized to violence and had it all connected to sex in his head, where it was all the same difference, and basically was taught how to kill. His kill. cousin Mike. Yeah. And his uh, uncle. Yeah, Uncle Perv. Yeah. Yeah, with guns and knives, how to be silent and move through the darkness unnoticed. And he'd got really good at stealing cars and jewelry. And he was doing that to robbing all the houses and stuff to pay for his vices. That, so it was just basically another day in the life of Richard was going out and robbing and raping. Mm-hmm. So at this point, he was pretty much getting deeper into Satanism and even believing that Satan was protecting his every move and preventing him from being caught. You know, like, you know, he was watching his back, basically. Yeah. There we get a little recap on that, and then uh, let's dive right in. We'll move to uh, the night of May 29th of 1985. This is when uh, Richard was driving a stolen car, and it he drove it to Monrovia, California, and he stopped at the house of Mabel Bale, which everybody called her Ma Bale. Right. And she was 83, and she lived with her disabled sister, Florence Lang, but everybody called her Nettie, and she was 81. And Richard broke into the house, and he found a hammer in the kitchen. Yeah, he went in to break in to, to go steal more stuff, but when he didn't find very much to, to steal, he, he kind of got a little ill about that. Yeah. So he got the hammer. And he bludgeoned and bound Lang in her bedroom, and then bound and bludgeoned Ma Bell before using an electrical cord to shock her. Yeah, and it wasn't one just little ding in the head. He he was kind of swinging. Yeah, it was it was brain matter. Yeah, it was pretty said. bad. But I think what he done was he didn't he get a lamp and pull the cords out of a lamp. Yep. And it still plugged in. He was he was shocking them with the with the lamp cords. Yep. It was a clock cord actually. Yeah. Yep. yep. Clock cord. Okay. Same difference. Yeah. And after raping Nettie Lang, he used Ma Bell's lipstick 
and he drew a pentagram on the, her thigh. Yep. And also on the walls of both bedrooms. Right. And the women, they were they were actually found about two or three days later. Yeah, he's found by like a gardener. He'd went around and uh, knocked on the door and didn't get an answer. And like the second day, he actually went in and found them. They were still alive. Yeah, after after two days and with their brains yeah, exposed with uh, several well, skull fractures and brain matter and everything, but they were still alive. Yeah, and actually, uh, Nettie lived. Yeah, Nettie lived even though that uh, Ma Bell had died. And it was actually the next day, Dale uh, Ramirez drove the same car to Burbank, California. And he snuck into the home of Carol Kyle. Yep. Went and, in through a doggy door. Yep. And <laughs> a doggy door. <laughs> yep. Snuck around the back and uh, reached up through the doggy door and, and unlocked the, the back door and went in. Yeah. I mean, them things are kind of scary in a way to have. Yeah, they're real handy if you want. If you're lazy, you won't get off the couch. But then again, you're going to let the night stalker in the back door. So mm-hmm. what's worse? <laughs> I bet there's a lot of teenagers that snuck out and snuck back in oh, yeah. the night through doggy oh, doors. I'm sure. Yeah. Like I said, he drove the same car to Burbank, California. He snuck into Carol Kyle's home, and she was 42. And at gunpoint, he bound Carol Kyle and her 11-year-old son with handcuffs. And then he tore up the house looking for stuff he could steal. Right. Yeah, her husband had died like six years prior to this in a plane crash, so they were the only ones there. And it seemed like he was stalking houses that didn't have a male in the house, or if they did have a male, he would take the the mail out he'd, yeah he'd, he'd kill them right away yeah i pretty much think he was just playing random house once everyone looked good or had a dark around the front doors or had it the door was obscured or something or whatever and he'd mm-hmm. just pick it and go in and i don't know yeah he'd always take out the mail or the or the aggressor out first yeah but then um he released carol kyle and he directed her to take him around to find the family valuables in the house and then he raped her several times Yep. Richard also repeatedly ordered her to not look at him. And at one point, he told her he would cut her eyes out. Mm. And he fled the scene after receiving her son from the closet and buying the two together with handcuffs, but he let them live. Right. Yeah, actually, when he went in first, he put the, he bound them together and put them in the closet. And then he walked away, and then he thought about it, and he went back and opened and said, you don't have no guns in here, do you? <laughs> like, yeah. no, we don't have no gun so he made him get out and lay on the bed and put a cover over him while he searched the house and uh she said you know does to take the valuables but just don't hurt her and he said well who's us was, you know i thought it was just you two here and because we'll have a daughter but she's not home she won't he said well maybe i'll wait for her too and said well she's spending the night somewhere else she won't be home till tomorrow so when actually when he left he uh handcuffed him and put him back on the bed but he actually put the key out of reach for them and when he left he said when your daughter gets home tomorrow, she can let you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it was probably lucky for her that she wasn't at home. Right. Yeah, because he really went off on her. He, she made him perform uh, oral copulation and sodomized her a couple of times. And actually, when he left, he said, well, you weren't bad for your age. <laughs> you know, she, <laughs> says, she said thanks, you know, but just stroking his ego so, he, so they would live. Mm-hmm. In early June, Richard went to the house of John and Susan Rodriguez. He went around sneaking when he tried to pry the window open. The window had been painted shut. So when he pried it open, it popped and made a noise, and she actually heard it. And uh, so he, he left and ran away, but he actually had left a, uh, a footprint. And if I'm not mistaken, John was the one that was a, uh, actually a sheriff's deputy, and he was in clean, cleaning his gun. Yeah. And uh, actually, this was in the same neighborhood as where um, 
Yeah, it was in the same neighborhood as Gil Carrillo. He was a detective for Los Angeles Police Department. Yeah, his mom lived right around there, so he pretty much took this personal, and that's when he decided to click it up a notch. That he had actually come into the neighborhood where his mom lived and attempted to break in a house, and he left a shoe print, so he definitely knew it was him. Mm-hmm. It was that same of E, 11 and a half. Yep. Yeah. And then later that same night, Richard attempted to uh, to abduct a girl. He basically tried to, to kidnap her, and a stranger had, had seen him after she had screamed and called 911, so he'd fleed the scene on that and didn't get her either. And that's when he left and running a stop sign, and an L.A. Uh, police department motorcycle cop pulled him over. And uh, when he pulled him over, he actually went up to him and, and uh, asked him if he was the night stalker. <laughs> asked him if he was the night stalker. Yeah. He's like, no, nah, man, <laughs> when are you going to catch that guy? You know, and it went off and it was a big joke. But Richard was like, damn, so no wonder, you know, he thinks Satan's saving him because this is another fluke thing when he should have had him right here. And uh, he gave him his stuff and he went back to the motorcycle to uh, call in his stuff, call in his ID and stuff. And uh, Richard slipped out of the car and drew a pentagram on the hood and ran. Yeah. And got away. Yeah. So it was like, here's another where the police department dropped the ball. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty crazy. And then, you know, later they would find some stuff in the car, like a, a phone book with some family phone numbers in it and a, a dentist appointment card. But this stuff wouldn't be found till way later because they just had the car impounded and didn't really check into it because they didn't think it was nothing to it. All right, Dale. On June 27th, uh, Patty Higgins had her throat cut and dying in another stalker attack in her own home. On uh, July the 2nd of 85, Richard drove a stolen car again to Arcadia and randomly selected the home of Mary Louise Cannon. He entered the home, and he found her sleeping in her bedroom. He bludgeoned her to unconsciousness with a lamp and repeatedly stabbed her using a 10-inch butcher knife that he found in the kitchen. So here again, he's just using whatever he can find. Yeah, just going in the house and getting what he can get. Yep, smash her in steel. Yep. Three days later. Yeah, just three days later, on July the 5th of 85, Ramirez broke into the home in Sierra Madre, California. And there was a 16-year-old girl there named Whitney Bennett. Right. And he bludgeoned her with a tire iron as she slept in her bedroom. Yeah, actually, her parents were sleeping, you know, in the bedroom in the house. They were yeah. there. And when he came in, he couldn't find nothing he wanted and decided she was the one. So he went back to the car and got his tire iron and come back. Mm-hmm. So it's crazy. He, had, he attempted to strangle her with a telephone cord. And he was startled to see electrical sparks from the cord and then I, I guess it was just like he was believing that, that Jesus was intervening yeah he had, he had already bludgeoned her pretty bad with the with the tire and then when he was trying to choke her out those sparks coming and she took a big breath like she came back to life mm-hmm. and it really freaked him out because he thought Jesus had intervened in him yeah his uh, his Satanism was really playing a big part in his oh, yeah. his acts his thought process yeah yeah most definitely so uh he he basically left and uh she survived although it took like 478 stitches to close up the lacerations from that tire iron so he wasn't playing around when he and it's it's crazy how you know how some she, people she, survive these attacks yeah because he was he was going to kill oh yeah most definitely and two days later on july the 7th he burglarized the home of joyce lucille nelson and she was 61 year old in monterey park and he found her asleep on her living room couch. What is it about being asleep on a living room couch? I don't know, but you don't want to do it no more. No, uh-uh. So lock your windows, lock your doggy door, lock the door, don't sleep on the couch. Stay off the couch. <laughs> and he beat her to death using his fist and kicking her in the head. Yeah. It was pretty brutal here. And he he, he actually left a shoe print from his Avia sneakers 
yeah. and printed it on her face. From stomping her in the head and left actually left the God damn left a footprint on her face. Man. Yep. And after cruising two other neighborhoods, he returned to Monterey Park and chose the home of Sophie Dickman. And she was sixty three. And he assaulted her at gunpoint and attempted to rape her. He stole her jewelry. And when she swore to him that he had taken everything of value, he told her to swear to Satan. Yeah. So he was stepping up his game with his Satanism. Yep, stepping it up. And after this is basically when the media started being, you know, started a pretty much a media frenzy. Detectives had actually admitted that the, they thought this was a serial killer and that they could link it all back to one man. They didn't give out the evidence, but we know, you know, it was like from some of the uh, the bullets and definitely the shoe print. Yeah. And at this point, it's when they finally go through that car that was impounded, you know, the one that... Uh, the that he drove the pentagram, yeah, the pentagram, the, on, the the pentagram hood. on the hood. Yeah, and they found that a dental appointment card, and they assigned some teams to go stake out that dentist, but it was too late. He had already been there and, and wasn't going back. Mm-hmm. So they're starting to put stuff together here. Slowly, but what what it is, there were two different uh, law enforcement agencies oh, yeah. investigating this, and they weren't communicating at all. Right. They're like the L.A., whatever. Their different departments wasn't, wasn't putting the pieces together. It's like, we got our pieces, you got yours, and then we'll figure it out, or you figure it out. They didn't. I don't think they realized that it was all the same same person at the same time. Yeah, and I think both of them knew about the, the footprint, but they weren't communicating about it. Right. So they... And and this was just Richard's ego being built up that Satan was helping him. Yep. He thought that he was being taken care of. Yeah. Yeah, because, hell, I mean, look how many times he was almost caught. He was almost shot by the shotgun. It wasn't, well, it wasn't loaded. The, the cop bumbled and let him go. Mm-hmm. And it was a couple other times that he was, he was almost caught or could have been caught and just got free. Yep. And on July the 20th of 1985, uh, Ramirez purchased a machete before driving a stolen Toyota to Glendale. Yeah, he had uh, he was kind of feeding off all its attention he was starting to get in the media, so he decided he was going to take it up a notch, and his plan was to get this machete. He was going to go in and uh, whack these people up and was planning on leaving some heads on the on the front lawn for the cops and the yeah. media. And he chose the home of Leela Needing, who was 66, and her husband, Maxon, who was 68. And he, he burst into the home, actually into their bedroom, and hacked him with the machete. Yeah, but it didn't go as according to plan, so it didn't. It didn't uh, hack up kind of like a Friday Thirteenth hacking. It just hacked him up okay, but then he ended up shooting him and then robbing the house and then going back and hacking up a little more and then then he left. Yeah, he mutilated their bodies with the machete right. and robbing the house of valuables. Yeah. All right, Dale. That that next morning, after uh, the needings, it was about four fifteen in the morning. He broke into the home of the Kovanoff family. Right. And he shot China Kovanrong Kavanaugh in the head. Man, that's a hell of a name. Yeah, that's a tongue twister right <laughs> there. But he shot him in the head with a twenty-five caliber handgun. So here he's went up to a twenty-five. So this yeah. is a different gun now. Yeah, and he killed him instantly. Then he repeatedly raped and beat some kid Kavanaugh. And he bound the couple's terrified eight-year-old son before dragging some kid around the house to look for the valuables. And he, he stole all the valuables. Yeah. Demanded her to swear to Satan that she wasn't hiding anything from him as well. Yep. Yeah, what he done, he left he left her and went to the bedroom where her husband Chinarong was sleeping. He put the gun to his head and shot him shot him in the head. And he ran back to Somkin and noticed that she had taken off her wedding ring and he slapped her. Mm. And then he ripped her off her nightgown and dragged her to the bathroom where he cut the cord of the hairdryer and used it to tie her hands behind her back. 
and he took her into the bedroom where he raped her in the presence of her dead husband. Mm. And their boy's alarm clock went off, so he left some kid just for a minute and went to tie up the young boy and gag him with a sock. And he forced her to lie down on him and sodomized her. Then he told her he'd kill her and the kids if she didn't give him all the cash and valuables. And she gave him the diamonds and other precious stones that he had gotten from her brothers, who was a jeweler. And after Ramirez got the valuables and he raped the wife, he took their eight-year-old son into the next room with about a bottle of baby oil. And Mrs. Kovanoff was forced to listen to Ramirez as he raped his raped her son. So he, what he sodomized him with a bottle of baby oil. Yep, and he stole. Right. Yep, he stole about thirty thousand dollars in cash and jewelry. And on just a couple weeks later, on August the sixth of eighty five, Richard Ramirez drove to Northridge, California, and broke into the home of Chris and Virginia Peterson. And he crept in the bedroom and startled Virginia, who was twenty seven, and shot her in the face with a twenty five caliber semi automatic handgun. Then he shot Chris in the neck and attempted to flee. But Chris fought back and avoiding being hit with two more shots during the struggle before Ramirez managed to escape. Right, yeah. When he shot Virginia in the face, he's like shot her like right under the eye. And then it went down like through her throat and out the back of her neck without hitting anything that was vital. Yeah. So these both of these people lived. Yeah, they survived. Yeah, he shot Chris and uh, he actually fought him off and he shot at him two more times, but he missed him. So. Uh, Richard Fleet was seen, and both of these people survived and ended up later testifying testify him in court. Now, I've heard, too, that Richard was kind of a, you know, if he was being challenged in any way, he would, it almost be like a scaredy cat. He would he would flee. Well, I'm sure. And these people are young, too. Both, yeah. of, these, both of these are in their 20s, so they're they had pretty some, strong, yeah. They had some gumption about him. Yeah, and, well, you know, Richard wasn't a big guy anyway. He was kind of lanky and stuff, so yeah, he could be a, a real tough guy against kids and really old folks, but especially when he went in and shot him and tied him up, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, two days later, on August the 8th, uh, Ramirez drove a stolen car. What is it about him with stolen cars? That's all he ever drove. Yeah. And during this whole thing, I'm thinking he had like five or six different cars, so that was another way that they didn't really know how to how to find him or how to keep up with him. It was His MO was always changing. It wasn't ever the same. He was always using different weapons. Mm-hmm. Different, you know, it was just picking houses at random, so they couldn't pick get a pattern, and then they they didn't know what he was driving because it was always something different. Yeah, only thing that stayed the same was that shoe print. You know, like I said a while ago, even even the gun changed after a while. You know, because he had a twenty two revolver, and then it went to a twenty two automatic. Now it's a twenty five. Yeah, so that's changed. The only thing that hadn't changed is the shoes. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later. His bad breath, maybe. Yep, and we're <laughs> going to talk about that too. And as like I said, he drove uh, on two days later. Uh, Ramirez drove a stolen car to Diamond Bar, California, and he chose the home of Sakina Abawath, who was 27, and her husband, Elias Abawath. He was 31. And it was just a little after 2.30 a.m., he entered the home and went into the master bedroom. He instantly killed the husband, Elias, mm. and shot him in the head with a 25 caliber handgun. And he handcuffed and beat Sakina while forcing her to reveal where the location of the family jewelry. There you go again. He's trying to find valuables yep this is pretty much this whole deal was stealing stuff and all this other stuff was extra uh, he brutally raped her and then re- uh, repeatedly demanded her to swear to satan that she would not scream during the assault mm. and this was when their three-year-old son entered the bedroom i guess he'd heard what was going on he yeah. got up and come in there and richard tied him up 
and continued to rape Sakina. And after Ramirez left the house, Sakina untied her son and sent him to the neighbors for help. Yeah, that's crazy, man. Yeah, actually, uh, she would uh, send him in there to wake up Elias because she didn't think he was dead. And he come back and said he, he won't wake up. And then she told him to go to the neighbors and finally had to uh, entice him to go in by promising him ice cream Yeah, to go to the neighbors. And then he came over to see what was going on. And uh, after this attack is where he finally gets the Night Stalker moniker. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess no more screen door killer or screen door. Yeah. Or the Valley something, Valley killer, Valley strangler, whatever they called him. Yeah, the screen door intruder. That's yeah, that's it. Screen door intruder. <laughs> yeah, so now he becomes the Night Stalker, right? Yeah. Right after this and one. this really boosted his ego. Yeah. And if I'm not, think, if I'm not mistaken, I think uh, – this lady later on in life would tell her sons that uh, her husband had died from cancer until they were well on well older because she didn't want them to bear that burden that yeah. he was killed by Ramirez. Even well, I'm though, sure at three they probably didn't remember anything about that. No, they, they didn't mm-hmm. know. So then, and uh, so she waited to way later to tell them she kept that in all that time. Wow. Yeah. So now we're in the Night Stalker, and uh, he's happy. He's got his name. Well, he's seeing his his name in the paper not the name but the night stalker and he's getting a lot of heat yep so he he leaves los angeles and he heads to san francisco going on vacation yeah a little <laughs> little vacation and on august 18th of 85 he entered the home of peter and barbara pan yeah that's his name peter i know every time <laughs> peter pan i'm like come on man but yeah he entered the home of peter and barbara pan and he shot Peter, who was 66, in the temple with that 25 caliber handgun. And then he beat and sexually assaulted Barbara. And she was 62 years old. And he, he shot her in the head and left her for dead. Mm, yep. And then uh, he drew a big pentagram on the wall here and also wrote Jack the Knife on the yep. bedroom wall. Yeah. Which uh, I'm assuming comes from the, the song Ripper from Judas Priest. Yeah. Yeah. He probably was listening to that on the way over or something. Probably did. He was a metal guy. Giving a lot of bands a bad name. <laughs> and when it was discovered that the ballistics and shoe prints evidence from Los Angeles crime scene matched that of that of the pan, the pan crime scene, San Francisco mayor then, Diane Feinstein, see, this is what gets me, Dale. Mm-hmm. She was the mayor of San Francisco, Diane Feinstein. She's an idiot. And Richards is thinking that Satan is helping him. Yeah. He is on his side. He is looking after him. He's good to go. But all the time, Diane Feinstein is looking after him. What she does is she gets on TV and releases some information that she shouldn't have. Yeah, she's stupid. They told her, you know, kind of what was going on. We know what's going on when they found out about the shoe print and all this stuff and go in and brief her on it. And then she just runs and has a damn press conference. Yeah. Tells about the shoe print and everything. So what do you think he's going to do? You know he's already... He's hyped up. He's watching the news. He's seeing all this stuff about himself. And then she gets on there and going, well, we're closing in on him. We got his shoe print and his gun. We know what he's got. So what do you think he's going to do? Yeah. He's going to get rid of it. You're turn right. And he goes to the Golden Gate Bridge. Junks it. Yeah. Throws it off the bridge and the shoes and the gun was never found. Right. Idiot. Yeah. And he stayed in San Francisco for a few more days and then finally headed back to Los Angeles. Back to L.A. Back to L.A. And on. He liked the orange, too, because he's in a store with an orange Toyota here. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And August 24th of 85, uh, Ramirez traveled 76 miles south of Los Angeles in a stolen orange Toyota to Mission Viejo. And it's that night. Say. Yeah. And that <laughs> night, and that night at the home of James Romero Jr. And they just returned from a family vacation in Rosarito Beach, which was in Mexico. And Romero's son, who was 13, who was, his name was James Romero III, and he happened to be awake and heard Richard's footsteps outside the house. Yeah. And he was actually thinking there was a prowler. And he went to wake up his parents, and uh, Richard fled the scene. And the son raced outside and noted the color and making the style of the car, as well as a partial license plate. Yeah, and was smart enough to write it down. Yeah, that was a 13-year-old. 13-year-old. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Romero contacted the police with all that information, believing that James had chased away the thief. Yeah, he just thought it was, he didn't really realize didn't, who it was. Yeah, he didn't think it was a night stalker or anything like that. At first, Los Angeles police thought that the murder of a young woman last March was an isolated act of violence, but since then they've come to believe it was connected to a wide-ranging series of assaults by a killer who's become known as the Night Stalker, a killer who apparently struck again during the weekend. We have a report from Nadine Berger. Police today continue to search for any clues in the near-fatal shooting of 29-year-old William Carnes and the rape of his girlfriend. They're apparently the latest victims of the Night Stalker, thought to be responsible now for 34 brutal attacks, 14 of them fatal. These serial killings, once confined to the near Los Angeles area, are now spread over 500 miles from San Francisco to Orange County. Just as before, the assailant entered a house in a quiet middle-class neighborhood in the pre-dawn hours on Sunday through an unlocked window and attacked the couple while they slept. Neighbors are terrified. Guy just sleep with my hand on my, right by my bed and a sawed-off shotgun, <laughs> which I always have. I see. Why is that? Because if anybody comes in my house, they're not leaving. A killer who attacks randomly is described as white, 25 to 30 years old, with a predominant feature of badly stained teeth. So 5,000 flyers have been distributed to Los Angeles dentists asking for help with identification. And last week, San Francisco Mayor Diane yes, Feinstein announced ballistic tests it, have yeah. definitely linked the murder of a man there to the Night Stalker. But release of that information has outraged a Los Angeles sheriff frustrated by the difficulty of tracking a random murderer. It places this community in jeopardy because it impedes our ability, our ability to go forward fully with the uh, investigation. There's a total of $35,000 in rewards has been offered, including today a $16 donation from this group of concerned school children. Today, the search for California's Night Stalker continues, and many residents sleep with their doors and windows bolted tight, despite 100-degree temperatures. Ramirez broke into the home of Bill Carnes. His fiance, Inez Erickson. Yeah, Bill was 30 and his uh, fiance was 29. And he broke in through the back door. This is the first time he's actually had to break in, break in? Yeah. Because he kicked in the door or something, right? Yeah, he did. And he entered the, the home of their bedroom and woke the Carnes when he cocked the 25 caliber handgun, mm. the click. And he shot Carnes three times in the head before turning his attention to Erickson. And Ramirez told, you know, Bill Carnes' fiance that he was a night stalker. Yep. So I guess his little egos went up another notch. Oh, yeah. He just came in. You know who I am. Yeah, I'm the night stalker. And he forced her to swear that she loved Satan as he beat her with his fist and bound her with neckties. And after stealing what he could find, 
Ramirez dragged Erickson to another room and raped her, then demanded all the cash and money and made her swear to Satan there was no more. And before leaving the house, <laughs> before leaving the house, Richard told Inez, uh, tell him the night stalker was here. Yep. And Inez untied herself and went to the neighbor's house to get help and, and help her fiance. Yeah, and then Bill actually lived. Yeah, removed. After being shot in the head three times. Yeah, removed two, two of the bullets from his head. I think he's still got one still lodged in his head. Crazy. Yeah. But uh, Inez was able to give a de- detailed description to the investigators, and police obtain a cast of Romero's footprint from Romero's house. So now well, this would be a new shoe then, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, it would. And I'm sure it's an 11 and a half. <laughs> yeah. So you can't change that unless you just change your whole shoe size. Yeah, unless just, it's like a 14 or something. Yeah. <laughs> a little floppy. <laughs> yeah. Clown shoe. Yeah, there you go. And the stolen car was found on August the 28th in Wilshire Center, Los Angeles. Yeah, now this is the car that uh, little Romeo found, right? or uh, had, uh, jotted down a number, right? Yeah, yeah, a little 13-year-old boy. Yeah, what was his name? James, not Romeo. James Romero. Romero. The police obtained a single fingerprint from the rearview mirror. It's actually on the back side of the rearview mirror, because Richard's always careful about wiping down stuff and cleaning up his fingerprints. Yeah, he had been arrested before, and he knew his fingerprints were in the system, so he's always really diligent about cleaning up and uh, wiping clean the cars and stuff, the stolen cars. But this one was on the rear side of the rearview mirror, and it was only a partial, and they run it, and sure enough, it was him. Yep. And also, at this time, the print, you know, like I said, um, the print was positive identified as Ramirez. Yep. And described him as a 25-year-old drifter from Texas. With a long rap sheet from everything, rest, traffic, legal drugs, and everything. Yep. So that when they run that, actually, so they, they had the, the picture and everything mugshot from when he had been arrested and, uh, from uh, December 12, 1984. And then so now they knew the Night Stalker finally had a face, and that's when they called a press, uh, a press conference announcing, that we know who you are, and soon everyone will know where you are. And they was plastering this all over TV and newspapers yeah. and everything. Nowhere to hide now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Richard didn't know any of this press conference stuff was going on. No, he, he missed all, on the, all this big story. He was going to go see his brother. Yeah, and on August the 30th, <clears throat> uh, Ramirez took a bus to Tucson to go see his brother. And he was totally unaware that he was, I mean, the lead story. That's crazy, isn't it? And then television and newspapers and everything. He had no clue. Not a clue. But... He didn't. He didn't get to meet his brother. I don't know what happened or anything like that. But yeah, there's, there's plenty of weird stories about that. But anyway, whatever he did, he just decided to take the bus and come back to L.A. Yeah, and on actually, and the funny story about when he got back to L.A., the cops were already casing the bus stations. They thought he was going to try to get out of town. Yeah. So when he pulled in, they're all looking on outgoing, and he hops off a bus and sees them, and kind of ducks and walks right by them. Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't looking for him to come back into town. Right. They didn't know he'd left. So he, he uh, went across the road into a little store. So there he thought he's, he's free again. Yeah. He thought Satan was looking after him. Yep. And he went into the store and looked down and saw the newspaper and saw his name and saw his picture on the front page. Everywhere. Yeah. So they, yeah, it, it was getting hot. That's when he looked up and seen there was a, a group of uh, elderly, I can't even say, a group of older uh, Mexican ladies. We're all over there, and they started screaming, El Matador, El Matador, which means the killer. And that's when he realized the jig was up. Yeah. And he ran across the Santa Ana Freeway, and he attempted to carjack a woman. 
and he was chased away by bystanders, but they chased after him. Yep. Yeah, and, he tried to get a couple of cars, didn't work too good. And he went over several fences, and yeah, and, and I was actually eventually taken down by a group of residents. Oh, yeah. They, a couple of guys fought him off, and then he'd run a little bit and try to jack a car, and then they'd fight him off and take off again. And then finally one guy pulled a metal pole out of his fence and smashed him in the head with it and knocked him down. And uh, at the same time, the police were getting all these calls about somebody running through the backyard and jumping fences, so mm-hmm. they were on their way. But this whole mob from this community was chasing Ramirez down. Yeah. And they were uh, they were laying it to him pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, basically, if the cops wouldn't have got there, they probably would have killed him. Yep. You know, it's funny. I did receive one story where it said that when the cops finally got there, and they uh, they pulled him up, and he was bleeding pretty bad. You know, it was a little flicking up, and he goes, "Thank God, y'all here." Yeah, they would have killed him. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, wait a minute. Didn't you say? Didn't you mean to say? Thanks, Satan. Here. Yeah. So at this time, I guess he had a change, or what? It was just being a poser, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But then whether it really happened, I don't know. But it's a pretty funny story. Yeah. All right, Dale. This brings an end to Richard Ramirez's um, attacks after he's arrested. So what we're going to do? We're going to we're going to stop here with part two. Okay. And we'll finish up with a part three and get into his trial and conviction and all the antics in the courtroom. Groupies, groupies, and <laughs> cookies and cupcakes, and talk about his teeth and his bad breath. Right, so where we're leaving off is uh, he's in a pile of his own blood, sitting in the back of a police car, wrapped up, head bleeding from a, a mob that had finally taken down a Night Stalker. Yep. We want everyone to be safe, be careful, and always be aware of your surroundings. Because the next episode could be about you. This is The, the Crack, Crack House, House Chronicles. Chronicles.